Open up that crystal Pepsi and get comfortable. This is Dopeness Dope. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dope Nostalgia. I'm your host, Naomi. We have another special interview for you today. And I'm still astounded that, you know, we're getting these amazing interviews with people who had huge hits in the 90s and having a great time putting the show together for you. So today's special guest is from a group called Harvey Danger. They had a huge, huge hit in the 90s called Flagpole Sitter. And... The lead singer, Sean Nelson, joins me today to talk about the band and what he's up to now. Here's a little background information on Harvey Danger. Wikipedia moment. Please bear in mind that Wikipedia is not to be taken as actual 100% fact. Any donkey could edit it at any time. If I'm reading you the artist's bio, that stuff is the real truth. Harvey Danger was an American alternative rock band. It was formed in 1992 in Seattle, Washington by Aaron Huffman and Jeff J. Lynn, who are both journalism students at the University of Washington. Drummer Evan Salt and singer Sean Nelson were brought into the band in 1993, solidifying the band's lineup for the remainder of their initial existence. After performing a variety of shows in the local area and recording a number of demos with producer John Goodmanson, Harvey Danger released their debut album, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone, in 1997 through the Arena Rock Recording Company. Although the album was not a success initially, its second track, Flagpole Sitta, began receiving nationwide radio airplay and soon after the band signed with Slash Records, a subsidiary of the major label London Recordings. Slash London reissued Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone and Flagpole Sitta as a single in April 1998 to widespread commercial success, with the album eventually becoming certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America in 1999. However, the band grew increasingly uncomfortable with their association with Flagpole Sitta and their perceived status as a one-hit wonder, and sought to distance themselves from the song and their early lo-fi sound with their subsequent musical output. Following a series of corporate restructurings that saw the band change record labels, Harvey Danger issued their second studio album, King James Version, in 2000, which showed the band moving in a more artistic direction influenced by the works of Radiohead and Frederick Tutton. Although its sole single, Sad Sweetheart of the Rodeo, became a minor hit, the album didn't perform as well commercially, and its failure led to the band breaking up in April 2001. But it has since attracted a cult following. Nelson, Huffman, and Lynn reformed Harvey Danger in April 2004, with Michael Welke replacing Salt on drums. In 2005, the band issued their third and final album, Little by Little, which featured a more piano-driven sound. The band's decision to release the album as a free BitTorrent download through their website attracted significant attention and helped renew the band's popularity. On May 28, 2009, Harvey Danger announced that they had amicably decided to disband, and the band played its final show at the Crocodile Cafe in Seattle on August 29, 2009. 
such an interesting history that I wanted to get straight from the source what actually happened. So thank goodness we're going to talk to the lead singer of Harvey Danger today, Sean Nelson. Welcome to Dope Nostalgia. Sean Nelson, welcome. Thank you. You're based out of Nashville nowadays, right? Yes. I've been back living here for about five years after having spent a bunch of my life in Seattle. Uh, oh. And But I, my folks moved here when I was a teenager. And so oh. I came back because my uh, both of my, both my mother and stepfather were ailing. And so they asked if I would come back and help take care of them. And I did. Oh, well, I'm glad you could be there for them. And what's it like in Nashville? Do you enjoy it? Uh, like the music, the culture? Well, I mean, I enjoy there's a lot of music happening here and I enjoy a lot of it. Um, uh, it's a very different musical culture than what I'm accustomed to. Um, yeah. Certainly it's different from what I knew in Seattle. Uh, it's much more professional here and uh, that's because many of the greatest, most skilled, you know, players uh, are here because it's the last, it's one of the last places in the world where you can actually make a nice living just by being really good at your instrument. Um, but that's really different from the culture that I was used to, which was much more of a kind of, I would hesitate to say like a collectivist utopia, but, you know, mm. Seattle, as I knew it, was much more like, hey, we're going to get together and play some music. You want to come and it's in someone's basement or a storage space or something. You know, I would hesitate to call Seattle a collectivist utopia, but the vibe was much more like, hey, some friends were getting together to play music. Do you want to come? And it's in my basement. And, you know, everybody shares a, you know, 12 pack of beer or something but in nashville it's much more like hey we're gonna play some music do you want to come and then you get an invoice but um oh. <laughs> that's but that's just the nature of the way it works yeah. and those people are you know making their living from doing it so it makes sense it's just different it's a good thing i think i mean less of a grind would you say that it would be trying to make it out of any other city I guess it depends on what you mean by make it, you know, like yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's much more industry centric. I'll say that. And since the music there. industry is very beleaguered, um, that sort of necessarily dictates what the vibe and attitude is like, but there is for all that, there's still a ton of generosity of spirit. Um, musicians support each other and I really, uh, admire and appreciate that. I love that. Glad I'm glad to hear it's, uh, been a good time there for you and yeah. who speaking of that who were your musical influences growing up for yourself growing up well um you know as a kid it was all very much like the the uh the sort of 60s and 70s uh sort of the boilerplate in a way beatles stones uh oh. joni mitchell was huge in my house um and Simon and Garfunkel as well, I guess, but sort of, you know, like the the sort of the smarter end of what you would think of as sort of popular music, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then as I came into my own taste uh, in, you know, in my later teen years and my early 20s, it was very much uh, R.E.M. and The Smiths and 
uh, and then also reaching back to things, you know, the kinks and the zombies. And I never let go of the Beatles, but those were all sort of the big ones. And I also had a kind of fascination with the monkeys from a very early age. And yeah. that has never, that has never dimmed either. Yeah. No, it's, I don't know much about the monkeys. It's funny because I know quite a bit about boy bands in general. I would rather mm -hmm. consider them an actual band because of the instruments. Right. So well, I know that's an issue for a lot of people and it's valid to a degree, but it's basically the, so what was interesting about them is sort of the, the way it was a much larger collaborative project with a bunch of different people coming in and writing and playing and uh, how that all kind of developed was very more sort of culturally influential than maybe musically. Yeah. Um, just like, but the way they were presented in some ways seems, uh, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know much about them to say this for a fact, but it seemed more manufactured, the presentation. Yeah. I mean, it, it was in fact, pretty manufactured at the beginning but mm -hmm. what's but you know you could in fact say the same thing about the clash or the sex pistols or any number of bands that were put together um mm -hmm. at the outset who kind of developed their own identities uh and and the band sort of became a band even though they were hired as actors which that whole transformation i find totally fascinating yeah no for sure and actually i it doesn't really matter how you come together it's what you create out of it that matters. That's right. That's absolutely right. Now, speaking of coming together, when Harvey Danger came together, from what I understand, you were all schoolmates and worked on the newspaper together. Is that correct? That is correct. That's interesting. Um, I like that. Yeah. I mean, we were just in college and, you know, I mean, I guess probably some of us had some uh, desire to, you know, yeah, find our way as journalists or whatever thinking ahead to when we had you know when we would have to have careers but mm -hmm. um well really it was just more like we all had an interest in doing that and we happened to meet but really what was captivating all of us was the music that was going on and the thing that was distinctive about us at least in my mind was that none of us had ever been in bands before like we had all sort of just sort of been like peering over the fence at what we thought of as, you know, rock and roll life, mm. but we didn't feel like it was something that we could necessarily, wouldn't even have occurred to most of us to even do it. But, um, but around that time, thanks largely to Nirvana and some of the more sort of, uh, uh, some of the cultural influence that they had it was very much a time when, the idea that anyone could do it was taking hold. And so, mm. you know, our our guitarist and bass player, Jeff and Aaron, went together to a music store, bought their first guitar and bass and tiny practice amps together, and then went back to their apartment and learned how to play by playing together, you know? So it was all very much like this was our first little, it was in many ways like, our own little treehouse, you know, more like more than a kind of band that was on the make in any way. It was really an art project before it was anything else. That's fascinating. And then I'm imagining when it comes to songwriting and crafting that you've got a heavy dose of lyricists there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's I mean, yeah, that so was always my department. Oh, perfect. And then so the music, the actual music part of writing, was that collaborative or? 
Yeah, we we kind of we had a really weird process that was really just to do with how we learned to be a band together, which was by playing together. And that's how the writing happened. We did everything like everything really was the four of us trying to trying to learn some sort of I mean, in some ways, it was just trying to learn how to communicate musically, you know, as much as trying to be ambitious about writing a song or whatever, because none of us had ever written a song before. Um, There are a bunch of ways to do it. The way we did it was pretty counterintuitive as I have gone on through, you know, and continued to make music and worked with a lot of other people. I've never met anyone who does it the way we did it. Um, And there are lots of good reasons for that um, because it's inefficient, but you know, it also is what makes our sound kind of, distinctive i think and just different from uh the way most bands it's different from the way most bands work but it's also we sound different from the way most bands sound and that's a sort of like it's for good and ill but it's who we were yeah there's no wrong way to write a song but i can see what i think that's true but there are wrong ways to try and write a lot of songs (laughs) and ours was ours was one of them i think but but you know in the end i'm i'm very proud of what we wound up making um, in, I think, every case. I mean, there are some songs of ours that I like much more than I like others, but um, but we never would have come up with any of it had it just been, you know, one person having to have the, you know, having to kind of be in charge of everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and the collaborativeness, um, I always find that to be a positive thing. Um, Going into my next question, actually, I like to highlight songs that were loved by the artists themselves, not necessarily the radio hits. I always like to share a deep cut when I can. So I'd like to know about your favorite tracks on the album, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone? Um, I I mean, I think that the leadoff song, uh, Carlotta Valdez, was really uh, was, you know, it's really good, <laughs> really exciting. And also sort of uh, it's idiosyncratic because the lyrics are, you know, I had gone to see a screening of the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo, which had been re-released in whatever, I think 96 or 97. Um, it, it was an anniversary and it had been restored and I just went and saw it. I'd seen it before, but it kind of didn't make as big an impression before I had seen it on the big screen. And I just, you know, I had all these very vivid impressions of the film and it so happened that you know someone had come up with a bit of that song and we got together and started really working it out and the lyrics just came right out and it's basically it's not a synopsis of the film but it's sort of in the voice of the main character of the film kind of mm. uh and I, and i just i also think that it even though there are very direct uh there's a very direct link between that like the the riff of that song the verses are very rem-ish and then the chorus is very kinksy and uh like i can really hear exactly what we were listening to right at that time but it also feels very much like us and so that's that's a that's a good one that's one i always am very happy to hear from that record
and then the other one is probably god uh i mean i i think that record is pretty solid from top to bottom given that it was the first thing we ever finished but yeah. um but i also think that the song um wrecking ball which is i think second to last maybe on it it's the least it's the most uncharacteristic thing on there it's very quiet and pretty and it has a nice violin bit in the middle um and the lyrics are pretty uh intimate um about family dynamics in a way that i think was maybe a, a stretch for me at that time not that i wasn't thinking about it but just like writing about it was uh it was i had to dig a little deeper for that uh and I, I think it's it sounds very accomplished given to me, given that so much of what we were doing was so boisterous and loud guitars and everything. And that one's very restrained and, and kind of lovely, I think. From Seattle and making music, getting together initially during the time of the grunge explosion, how heavily influenced were you by it, or did you find it more of a hindrance to what you were trying to accomplish? I mean, the truth of the matter is that we started playing together in '93, and I guess late '92, no, around '93. But like mm -hmm. the, you know, the um, the heyday of that sound was over um at least in as far as seattle was concerned in the mm. rest of the world it was still kind of on the rise maybe but um but ah. the kind of the to be in seattle at that time you would was to hear a lot of people who had lived there all their lives talking about how you know 
they how the world had missed the actual glory days um but you know our thing really we didn't sound like any of those bands but we loved most of them i would say i mean we mm. were for sure all not only big fans of nirvana but really are in some way that band and that record never mind had like demonstrably affected the course of each of our lives in different ways um mm. or in some ways changed the course of our lives um but it, it just affected all of us in really profound ways and there's no way probably we would have even considered starting a band had it not been for that influence um but again you wouldn't if you listen to our record side by side with any of their records even bleach you wouldn't be like oh right that's an obvious no. line <laughs> but no. like i i loved soundgarden still love them um mm. mud honey was a huge influence on us not again we didn't sound like them but the way they were was so inspiring and so good and so like just sort of there was a kind of i mean i don't because i lived in seattle all that time i am uh professionally uh forbidden to use the word grunge <laughs> but um because <laughs> you're not you're not allowed to use it but uh like if that word applies to any band it would have been mud honey um but they're so just there's a, a rawness and a dirtiness and a and also but also a, a sense of humor to them that really did uh affect all of our understandings of what rock and roll music ought to be mm. and so the, i mean i would say of the big bands that came out those were the three that we were really kind of attuned to there were mm. other bands that were that were as big or bigger than those others that you know we either liked or didn't like or had you know that we're there i don't think that any of us had a huge connection to any of them but it was that music was inescapable and so mm. it was it was it felt you know i mean it felt great to be in the shadow of that whole lineage but you know nirvana was the big one and i think they stand even now and maybe especially now they stand pretty dramatically apart from the rest of that explosion um are i mean creatively sonically musically all that stuff mm -hmm. uh but you know it's it's somewhat significant that you know we played our first show ever on i think it was april 6th 1994 and i remember thinking god I, like we played at this club that's no longer there not a club a bar called the lake union pub it was really pretty grotty but um i remember thinking you know, like that this was somehow the first little step on the way of being in some way connected to the a Seattle lineage and uh and it was exciting for that reason. And then it turns out, of course, that Kirk Cobain had killed himself just before that day, but the news didn't break until a couple of days later. Um oh, wow. and so there, there it's a it's kind of an interesting a little footnote moment, uh mm -hmm. historically. No kidding. Me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, and I mean, it could never have been a hindrance, especially in the sense that once we became, you know, a little bit more, maybe a little bit more ambitious about being heard by more people, um, it was, you know, obviously the mid to late 90s. It's not as though anybody 
had forgotten about Seattle. It was still, you know, a sort of a dominant uh, touch stone in the in the culture uh, mm-hmm. even though i think music popular music had moved on quite a bit um but you know when we went out on our first tours in 1998 once we were uh pretty you know pretty well exposed because of black pulse being uh hit uh every time we did an interview someone would ask us about seattle music what yeah. it was like if we were grunge like that that uh that line of inquiry was very fresh still, which was funny because it had seemed like old news to all of us. Yeah. And uh, like, even though it came and went in such a quick period of time, I feel like the lasting um, impression of grunge has stuck around. It's something we still talk about. And I think one of the reasons it was so huge and effective is, is this was the first thing of its kind. Now we have like cycles, right? We have pop cycles once in a while and, you know, those those kinds of things. But I don't think grunge ever did that. No, it was, I mean, it was in a way kind of the last, um, the last moment where uh, a sound came out that had never been anywhere near, certainly the charts, you know, it was, it had never been commercial. It had been around, obviously, like, you know, the Stooges' first album came out in, what, 68, something like that, late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. That music, the music and the musical influences that gave rise to it were familiar enough, but they were always a little underground. And, yeah. I mean, Nirvana also had a great punk lineage and also an interesting kind of new wave and pop sensibility, um, pop in the Beatles sense, not pop in the Britney Spears sense, but, right. you know... Uh, that music was known to people who cared about music, but it wasn't something that you would hear, you know, at the grocery store or something. (laughs) But but I think that Seattle moment was, it was the last time that happened where it was a new, or at least a a novel uh, thing for mainstream music. And everything that has happened since has been some kind of either revival or return or whatever but like mm-hmm. there's been nothing uh nothing to compare to it as a kind of national and international sort of sensation because mm-hmm. also all these other cultural factors came into play just after it like napster and the internet at large and you know the yeah. the sort of the collapse of the music industry um made it so that there was no kind of huge all those things came together to make it so that there is no mass audience anymore. Mm-hmm. More of like this big melting pot. <laughs> well, it's I think it's more like a bunch of different factions, you know, and yeah. and then and then everybody kind or you know a huge number of people come together for things that are just sort of that are made to appeal to the greatest number of people that they can, which is a little bit different from what I think of as what you know i mean i guess that used to be how rock and roll functioned but rock and roll feels like a pretty dusty artifact um in Uh. the culture you know it doesn't it doesn't have the same sense of excitement or immediacy that it used to because you know people have moved on and different sounds have become dominant i think that's fine it's just i'm still rock and roll is still kind of the magnetic north for me yeah but that's because i'm 100 years old (laughs) No, and I don't like the fact that uh, the only real rock out there now is considered called classic rock because of the fact that it's just not in popular culture anymore in a way that 
I find sad, you know? Yeah, I sometimes I'm saddened by it, but I have to say that there's something about it that I think is kind of fine and, and in a way maybe even good only in the sense that the idea that it was a mass art form, which it was for a long time, I mean, really from the very early 60s to the, you know, to the end of the 90s, I would say, and and maybe a little trickling out into the first decade of the 2000s with all those kind of revival acts, um, like mm. the strokes or whatever. Um, but, you know, uh, it's it's an anomaly that it ever was exciting to such a huge number of people because it's you know it's there are idiosyncrasies in the best rock and roll music and yes it can unite people and it still can but it's all a question of how many people equals a big audience and yeah. you know i recently went to a an amazing rock show that was in front of twenty thousand people and that seemed like a lot of people to me uh, and I mean, I've played to audiences that size and larger, and I've also played to audiences of way, way, way less. And it's still, it, you know, it just feels like whatever, whatever is in the room, you know, whatever, like however many people are interested, it can still constitute a community. What was the and show? And that's really important. Uh, I went to see you 2 play at the Sphere in Las Vegas. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I've seen all kinds of photos of the Sphere. But it I'm was it was one, it one, day. one of the most incredible spectacles I have ever witnessed. It was really, really amazing. That's and I've gone fantastic. I've gone back and forth on you two a hundred times in my life, but <laughs> they were they were triumphant. It was a great show. Good. All right. Um, what's one of your most memorable performances? You did mention the earlier one, the first one that you guys had done, but some is there another one that comes to mind as standing out for you um i remember a lot of you know there was a period right when we started playing regularly i mean the kind the, the shows that we were playing when we were playing in front of larger audiences a lot of those were you know fun and good in different ways some of them were disastrous and i you know i mean i remember a lot of them but they do sort of blur together in a way I will actually, I can tell you one that was from after we broke up and then got back together and it, mm. we were touring behind our third record. And, you know, there, when we got the band back together, it was very much like, is anybody going to care? Does anyone remember about all that stuff? And, you know, a lot of people did. And it, there was a, you know, not a, not a uh, mass audience once again, but uh, like a devout cult of people who really liked not just the one song of ours, but um, but our records and and cared about it. And we were playing in Chicago uh, at a club called Shuba's, which is pretty small. You know, it holds I think maybe three or four hundred people, but it was you know was commandingly sold out or whatever. I think we did two two nights, maybe three. I can't remember, but. I do remember that I had laryngitis. I had sung myself out on the tour. It was oh. like 2006. And I was standing up there basically, you know, like wheezing out the words like, I'm so sorry. I don't know if I can sing, but, you know, like we're going to try. And the oh. and they started playing, the band started playing the song uh, Wooly Muffler from our first record. And I started trying to sing and it was really a struggle. And then I noticed that the entire audience was singing every word 
of the you know the intro the intro part just over some quiet uh, guitar and I just stopped singing and listened and it, it was like it was like a you know a trust fall at camp or something I I leaned back into that audience kind of doing my part for me and I felt so connected to all of those people and so grateful that they not only were singing which is a great thing that people do which knows or whatever but like mm. they were singing for me and to me but also to themselves and they and they really knew it and they really like uh, there was I, I can't think of a time when the you know a lot of people talk about the connection between the performer and the crowd and i and i've you know i that's something i care about and believe in but i had never experienced it to that extent before in such a powerful emotional way and of course by the time the song kicked into the loud part i was in tears wow good tears mm -hmm. that would just fill you yeah like your it was heart. <laughs> it was powerful very powerful because you know uh, the nature of our you know what i will sort of laughingly call our career <laughs> which yeah. was you know i mean we had one i guess but uh you know our the nature of our whole thing was that people a lot of people heard one song and we had the very classic version of that one hit experience mm -hmm. but being exposed to so many people means that some percentage of those people actually would become connected to and invested in the rest of what we did too and mm -hmm. um of course that was always the more meaningful uh aspect and to feel it in action you know that's a it's an album track it was never i'm sure it was never once played on any radio station anywhere the song i like and we all liked it but you know it wasn't none of us thought of it as like our masterwork or anything but to know that all these people not and not only singing the chorus but singing all the words in the verse it's very wordy um mm -hmm. that that was a a powerful demonstration of the the thing that i think a lot of uh musicians and songwriters wonder about which is do people really know this work that we made and do they care about it does mm -hmm. it stay with them it, there was no there's no way you could see it any other way at that moment. And I've never, ever forgotten it. Very fulfilling. That was almost, that was almost 20 years ago now. So <laughs> crazy. Very fulfilling. And to know that the fan bases stay with you and, and want to know what you're up to next. I, that's something I think that every musician really does it for. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. The whole question of why people do music or performance of art really of any kind is a it's a tricky one and the way people talk about it in the world i don't always necessarily believe or agree with you know people sometimes talk in very vaunted ways about how they're doing it for the people or they're for the kids or for you know like because the world really needs to heal or something like that when in yeah. fact i think that the reason people do performance based art of any kind is essentially pretty selfish um mm -hmm. and not you know i don't even i don't mean that in a negative That's way not a bad like, thing 
it's, an it's outlet. for uh, it's for you you know and you then do it for others and then you kind of your experiences align in some way if you if you're lucky and mm-hmm. the that that kind of by that point that whole all of our music felt both intensely private and personal to me but also shared by a, you know a Again, not a massive number of people, but I don't know what a massive number of people. I don't know. I don't know what the sort of ideal number of people has to be for it to be <laughs> meaningful. Because we have also played shows for three people, um, mm-hmm. and and they have been great, you know. And yeah. we've played in front of fifty thousand people, and it sucked, and I felt nothing. So, like yeah. that. That's a, just a, a strange little. We, I have had one of the weirdest rides through <laughs> through my life and music and i i like it that way your thoughts on the success of flagpole setup because i've heard that sometimes people come to resent the song that made them big or they're just they just plain get tired of it how do you feel about that song this many years later well, I mean, I have been through a bunch of different uh, iterations of feeling things about it. Yeah. Now, what I feel is lucky and good. And it's, you know, it's it, like I, I, if you, you know, if we had several hours to really dissect this, <laughs> I could <laughs> tell you some stories. But, um, you know, at the time, I hated it. I hate, I didn't hate it, but I, I hated that it was the center of my existence and that basically my job became singing flagpole set up somewhere between two and five times every day and answering lots of questions about what it meant and having people tell me how they got their tongue pierced because of it or whatever. And, you know, not to suggest that that is something that any like thinking person could ever genuinely complain about but it was tedious um Mm -hmm. and and it was also not so long after the novelty of having a pretty big hit song kind of wore off and started becoming more just like the daily reality uh that i started worrying about what would come next and if something would come next because it was very clear the trajectory that we might have been on uh and Mm -hmm. it turns out we were on but you know you start thinking about well the next thing the next thing and yeah. and I think that that kept me for sure. But I think all of us from appreciating the experience as it was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as years have gone by, I've been very surprised to learn how durable the song has become. You know, it, like it still gets played all the time and it yes. still turns up in films and TV shows and things that uh, like yes i know that they're coming but i sort of i we we approve the request when we approve the request and then sort of forget about it and then it turns up and we hear about it from people that they heard it in some show or something and and the it's just part of the it it really is part of the landfill of popular culture you know i, it I is. say that i say that with uh with love because yeah. I like the landfill of popular culture for the most <laughs> part. But, you know, when I was 24 or whatever, three, when, I, when that was happening, I was very concerned with, like, wanting to not just be known for that one song. Because, yeah. of, you know, you feel a little defensive. But now, I mean, 
to be known at all, to be known for anything, feels nice. You know, otherwise I would feel pretty anonymous, even though I've done a lot of stuff that I'm proud of and that has, you know, I would judge to be good or, you know, at least worthy in some way. But I know that outside of my my little sphere, um, it's uh, it's you know it it's known in the world, and it has opened a, an enormous number of doors for me, both like socially and also professionally. That mm-hmm. you know, without it, it would just be like I would be telling people that I was in a band as I made their coffee or something. And there's, you know, like that's the story of most bands. Um, and I'm, I'm happy about the fact that there is at least, I don't have to explain why I was in a band to people, um, yeah. uh, you know, but you know, it's, a, it's not as though there's no bittersweet component of it. Uh, that became especially acute when Aaron, the, our bass player, uh, died a few years ago. Um, because even though we had stopped all working together, there was always the notion that we might do something again. And, mm. uh, and then, you know, just as we were actually talking about doing a little, uh, a little tour in, uh, of festivals in England, because a booker had approached me about it, um, that's when he went in the hospital and he never came out. And that, kind of really you know sewed it up in a certain way and made it a uh you know made it a a a kind of closed system you know the the experience of the band and it also made a lot of things feel like well you you know that's that's how it happened and there's no revising it and there's no going back and we were kids and then we were grown-ups, and then we stopped working together. And now I look back on it with a lot of love and gratitude. I'm sorry to hear about Aaron. Um, do you guys, the rest of you, keep in touch in any way? Still yeah, friends? we all do. But, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, better friends now, I would say, even though we don't see each other nearly as much. But, you know, the, we all had a certain amount of, you know, all bands, I think, are... Uh, all bands have in common that the, you know, the, there's a push and pull between the collective identity that, you know, where the band needs every person in it to be what it is, but then the individual identities of the people in the band are, you know, those things really push and pull against each other. And that's the story of basically every band. Um, And I think once we had, it was so disorienting, the experience of going from being like a band that had, you know, we had like, a, a, you know, some people knew about us in Seattle, but outside of Seattle, there was no sign that we existed to being suddenly everywhere for, you know, three and a half minutes at a time. Um, but, you know, everywhere we went, it was, you know, our single preceded us. Um, but then as years went by after that, uh, that caused a lot of kind of, I don't know, it was very, we were all a little dislocated and we didn't, we weren't there for each other the way we ought to have been. And I think the way really great bands tend to be. Um, Mm. and, and it took some time to kind of repair that. We never exactly fell out. There were no dramatic, like smashing things against walls and storming out, 
but right. but you know we we just you know we all needed a bit of time and space to become grown-ups about it and we did and we had that and i think we really appreciated each other uh and we appreciate each other still that's so that's the family a, that's a good feeling yeah that's the family elements of being a band sure. you, you need space from each other sometimes to really appreciate each other <laughs> right absolutely so. absolutely Nostalgia listeners, I love you and I thank you so much for being a part of this show and its success over the last two years. We have what's called Patreon for those who want to support the show financially. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a subscriber and get bonus content, early podcast release, all kinds of cool behind the scenes stuff, and more. There's different tiers of membership starting at only $1 a month. And we even have some special merch for you guys who are in it for the long run. So, please, join our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. Let's watch something as a casual movie review podcast starring Anthony. And Jack! Everyone loves hearing industry professionals talking about their craft. That's not us. We're just a couple of movie lovers. A couple of nerds. Talking about movies. So come join us on Let's Watch Something. With Anthony and Jack. Anchor.fm slash LWS. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's watch something. Let's watch something. Let's watch something. Let's watch something. Ragu introduces Chicken Tonight Simmer Sauces. And suddenly everybody's saying, I feel like chicken tonight, like chicken tonight. Choose from four new sauces. Each one's made with real vegetables and herbs. So you can make dishes like country French chicken and chicken cacciatore. Just brown the chicken, simmer, and serve. I feel like chicken tonight, like chicken tonight. New chicken tonight simmer sauces from Ragu. Chicken tonight. Um, one thing that I found really interesting is when you put out your third album, Little by Little. Yes. You did something that was pretty much unheard of. You embraced what was happening with the internet and you released the album as a free BitTorrent download. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yes. And it's, in fact, it's still available as that, even though I don't know if anybody still torrents anything, but yeah. Um, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> putting out, putting out a record in 2000, whatever that was, 2004 or five in there. It was mm -hmm. just like, you could fight against that or somehow like try and plant your feet and 
be opposed to it, or you could just admit that that's how people experienced music. It would be like putting out a record now or a book or whatever and just pretending TikTok doesn't exist. You're entitled to do that. And it, if it doesn't appeal to you aesthetically, it's totally valid. But like you are basically demanding that no one find out that you put out a record. And so, <laughs> and so rather than, and also, but also the culture had, you know, like, the culture wasn't massively interested in bands that had had a hit song in the late nineties in 2004 or five. It's not like it was impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, not a surf definitely had a great second act and they were a huge inspiration and they're good friends. But, um, but you know, like we just thought, well, what's the shortest line between us making this record and people hearing it. And it seemed like making it free because we were never, you know, we had some very good fortune, but we were never primarily concerned with money, much to our, you know, much to our chagrin at times. But like we left a lot yeah. of money on the table. Um, but in that case, it actually it worked out great and it gave us a good deal of goodwill. But more than that, it um, it just exposed a lot of people to it. And, you know, we had hundreds of we had more people bought downloaded and or streamed that song or that record sorry um little by little uh in the space of a month than had listened to or bought or knew about our second record king james version which cost oh. a lot of money and came out on a major label and had a big expensive video like all the kind of old line ways of promoting records yeah. nobody even knew it existed it seemed at that time it has developed a following since then but you know it just seemed like if you if you think about the project of being a professional band differently uh we were in a good position because also we had name recognition which made it newsworthy i guess in the you know in some some parts of the some parts of the media um mm -hmm. and then you know that became a much more kind of uh radiohead did the same thing a couple years later with um uh, was it in rainbows uh and that of that of course was a big watershed event in the culture and i i had uh had the opportunity to meet radiohead i was backstage at an rem show in uh in amsterdam in 2008 i think it was the on their last tour and radiohead was there and i kind of nervously tiptoed up to colin greenwood and asked him if he had even heard of our band or that we had done the same thing with our record. And of course he had not heard of our band or that we did that. So um, that was the answer to that question. But, you know, mm. it was still, you know, it, it was, it felt like a big validation that that whole project because we just did it ourselves because we really wanted to. And, and it felt good. And it was all, you know, there was a certain kind of, um, again, like closing the loop on a lot of unresolved feelings and stuff that we had about, being a band at all by that point yeah. so it was great i'm glad and, and that it, was the and last also, album wasn't it it was and it also by the way ps turned out to be profitable to do that that way which um was something that we didn't know for sure was going to happen not that that again was the the main goal but it certainly is nice not to have lost money on a big undertaking like that but yeah it was the last yeah. thing we did uh, the last thing technically was a single that we put out about a year later, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, that was it. Wow.
And that was the tour that that show in Chicago was for. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I I guess monetarily, it's probably the thing that gets people coming to the shows. It's the thing that gets the, you know, it's the commercial. The music is almost like the commercial to entice you to the band. I guess, I mean, it, it became that way. Um, it was not that way when we put out our first record because mm. like touring was considered to be sort of a loss leader um, that you would, you know, do a lot of shows and keep. But the, the goal uh, commercially was to get people buying the record because that's certainly where the label made its money. Yeah. Um, and and so and for a while, we weren't even permitted to sell our own records at our own shows because it would interfere with the sound scan numbers supposedly but oh, um but you know okay. but but that was also at a time when we were selling like 30,000 records a week or whatever so insane numbers uh for a band that you know that first record we made for $3,000 and it was you know the the original pressing of it was 1200 copies and to think that you know a year later it would be selling in those kind of numbers was just unfathomable to us and it's nice you know, we got a gold record out of it so but totally mind-blowing and totally like never on the agenda for us not that we rejected it but in some yeah. ways we did sort of reject it we definitely walked away from the from the sort of the smart way of trying to follow up on that success but you know the folly of youth nice perk though <laughs> that's right not too shabby <laughs> now this is something i'm just completely curious about now have people ever called you harvey danger like it's your name um i can't even like there isn't a number high enough to communicate <laughs> how many times that has happened to me it doesn't happen anymore which i'm yeah. grateful for yeah. um i never loved the uh never loved the band name but um but mm-hmm it was already the band name when I joined. So, um, but yeah, that happened every day for years. And I would be so some, annoyed. <laughs> it's in, it was intensely annoying. And then it was sort of like, it wasn't even annoying anymore. It was just sort of, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like breathing. Um, right. And because there's only so many ways that people had of kind of interacting and either it was, you know, they would be, uh, you know, they would be, respectful or disrespectful or chummy or mean or whatever like there's a bunch of different modes but like you hear the same stuff every day and it's fine it's totally fine back then i wasn't as sort of comfortable being myself uh, yet and so it was a little bit more like god my name that's not my name or whatever you know (laughs) i was more petulant more i was eating um, it was easier for me to access petulance than, uh, mm. than it is now. I don't really have that mode quite so much anymore, which is nice for me. But, um, but yeah, it was a thing that happened all of the time. <laughs> now, going into what you've been up to now, I know that, from, according to Wikipedia, you were hired as a reporter for the Stranger newspaper in Seattle. Are you still doing journalism to this day? And what keeps you busy now? Um, no, I, I worked at the stranger. I was actually working at the stranger before the band took off and I went back. I mean, it was a, it was a job I returned to intermittently throughout my 
life because it was, you know, I had a good relationship with the people who ran it and I felt connected to it for some years. And then I went back for one last little tour of duty in 2014 for a couple of years. And that was, you know, the, the world had changed sufficiently that doing journalism, at least in the way that I had done it previously, was no longer, it just no longer felt good. Um, mm. The the way that, uh, I mean, just the whole sort of disposition of people to media and platforms had changed so much that it was really like shouting into a room full of people who were already shouting. And so yeah. it, it was sort of uh, my my love for it had definitely dimmed. Uh, and so, no, I, I stopped doing it. I, I mean, I moved to Nashville to um, help take care of my parents, as I said, and I kind of mm-hmm. left that sort of writing behind, at least for now. I mean, I could go back. I've been very fortunate in my life to have a bunch of different kind of semi careers you know i did a lot of writing but i did a lot of music and then i also worked in film and i've done some acting on the side and i also i mean i've just done a bunch of stuff i have never been uh good at uh settling down into one profession uh which in some ways has made my life very interesting for me but uh you know sometimes i think i maybe should have been a little more selective and maybe specialized a bit more but um you know, I've been really lucky to have been able to pursue essentially everything that I want that interests me. So I feel uh, lucky about that. I think that's a wonderful thing, having a chance to try different things. A lot of people, lot of people have those opportunities. So it's good that you had them. That's true. I, I feel very fortunate. And, you know, when one would, sort, you know, different different disciplines would sort of step up and be a little bit more... Uh, demanding or a little bit more remunerative or whatever and i would do that for a while and then if they kind of dried up or i lost interest i would then do one of the other things and that's kind of i've I've bounced between uh those different pursuits really since i was uh 20 years old and that's 30 years ago and so uh, like that's a pretty i'm pretty pleased with how that has gone for the most part and i definitely feel lucky you had a couple solo albums too Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Though uh, you wouldn't necessarily know it unless you went looking. But yeah, they're they're out there. I'm really I I really like them. I think they're good. But um, but I am so I think the experience of Harvey Danger, uh, working in the sort of the business, such as it is, made me very uh, uncomfortable with doing the kind of promotional work that you need to do to put mm. music out, especially now um, when you really have to do it all for yourself. There's, I, I never quite got used to the thing of uh, self-promotion. I never got used to the thing of telling people to go and listen to my music or even that it existed. And so mm-hmm. I've been, uh, you know, I'm a bad, uh, I'm a bad uh, representative of my own work, but I, <laughs> you know, I, it's because it's for me, it's a thing that I do because I love doing it and not because I'm that eager for everyone to know about it. And I, right. I th- there's still something I just sort of, the world has changed a lot. And when I, when we started doing music, that was considered sort of gauche to be that way, even though mm. people still did it. Um, but now it just seems like everybody who makes a YouTube video is very happy to tell everyone in the world that they need to, you know, 
whatever click click and subscribe which is like i get why that is i just never like i'm very much a kind of 90s rip van winkle figure in that way i just don't i don't i've never been comfortable doing it and some of that is personal confidence some of it is aesthetic choice but uh, either way it's it's totally okay either way if if, you know if you're comfortable with it and uh it works for you then that's fine but yeah, no, I see where you're coming from on that. But, you know, it's also why I live in a rental house <laughs> instead of owning my own. But, that's, you know, that's fine, too. Um, it's uh, it's when you make art of any kind because you love doing it, and really that's the main reason, there's always a hope that people will hear it and like it. Mm-hmm. Uh and that, but that's enough to me to have the the hope for it, and not to be too uh, overly concerned with um, the the like the pursuit to make them hear it and know about it, you know. And yeah. certainly, the idea that because you make art, that somehow that needs to be the way you make a living. It's, I mean, it's great, and it is. It has always constituted at least part of my living. But like, it's not it's not the reason that I do it. And I think there's a weird emphasis on it in the culture. I've always kind of felt that way. It's obviously a luxury when you get to have that. And show business certainly tends to be a situation where you either get paid nothing or you get massively over rewarded. Um, There's, you know, what used to be thought of as like the middle class of being a working musician that has really dwindled. Uh, for yeah. a variety of reasons that we could get into on another podcast, maybe. But, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like I have no I have no problem with anybody doing it. It's just it's weird to me that somehow that became a thing that people felt entitled to because yeah. they wrote songs and recorded them. Yeah, no, you're right. That is a whole other show. Yes, it's a lonely <laughs> it's a lonely perspective, but it is my perspective. And there's, I'm sure there's several people who feel the same way. So you're not alone. There must be. I don't know where they are, but there there must be. Now, I'd like to always wrap things up by asking the artists, what food, fashion trend, clothing item, toy, any of those types of things would make you nostalgic for the 90s? Oh, um, wow. (laughs) I don't think there's a, like, I don't, I wouldn't say a food thing. I mean, really, it's just... Huh. It's tricky because I still listen to that music fairly regularly. I never really stopped. It's not that I don't listen to music that, you know, has been made subsequently. It's Mm -hmm. just, I guess, that when music kind of plays the role of uh, comfort food or something, uh, I, I turn to the records that I got the most connected to when I was the most available to music generally. And so in that sense, you know, the other day I listened to the Sebado album bake sale, Mm -hmm. uh, which I had not listened to for a few years. And I was just 23 years old again, you know, Mm. 20, 21 years old actually was when it came out. And like, it was such a, was such a, an incredibly central, thing in my life i i revered that album it was it felt like it had been made just for me and so to that extent 
the music of that time is just it it's not only something i enjoy listening to for nostalgic reasons but like it's kind of the cornerstone of my sense of who i am um mm. and that never really changes uh as much as i have also broaden my horizons musically maybe to some extent um but yeah that's that i guess that's the thing and maybe maybe also the thing where there was a certain amount of um i guess i when i think of the 90s i think of a time when it was kind of considered okay to kind of opt out of a lot of cultural things that there was a kind of real sense of refusal to participate Mm. um and that's something that I found kind of invigorating um, that, you know, that I think it was to some extent exemplified by that, the R.E.M. lyric that was also a Richard Linklater quote that was, you know, withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy, that there is a way in which not participating in discussions wasn't a sign that you didn't care. It was a mm-hmm. sign that you just were contemptuous of the way those discussions were being had and i find that uh, that idea has not diminished in me in the least Uh, the way people talk about things today is horrible it's so much of the time that i just don't want to i just don't want it to be anywhere near it and yet there is this sense that if you withdraw entirely that you not only are not participating but that you kind of become invisible and I guess maybe I've become a little more comfortable with being invisible as I get older. That being said, too, with the um, fact that people are keyboard warriors now, <laughs> mm, you, you yeah. get a lot of you get a lot of people arguing for the sake of arguing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that a lot of people um, uh, the the thing that social media has done maybe more than anything is that it's made it so that uh, I think a lot of people, I mean, obviously it has allowed a lot of people who didn't have a way of making their voice heard, uh, they now have a way. And that's yeah. uh, that's good. That's like essentially, that's essential. And it's really important. And all of that is true. However, it's also made a lot of other people, I, I think it's just made it so that people have opinions about things because they feel like they are required to and Mm -hmm. they have opinions about things that they wouldn't necessarily have ever had an opinion about but now Mm -hmm. they not only feel they have to have one they feel they have to have one so that they can publish it and that's (laughs) the problem you know i think as much as i am in favor of uh the democratization of culture i also think that like it has it has had weird ramifications on the way people think about art and language and all expression has been cheapened in a way um and that you know bums me out because i care about those things more than i care about most things but i think people need to know that it's okay to not say anything at all yeah you don't have to you don't have to post you don't have to you don't have to say a word um it doesn't mean you don't care sometimes it means you do care yeah but, you know, I'm not in charge, so people get to do whatever they want, and that's just <laughs> fine. Thank you so much for all the time you spent today with me, Sean. I hope you had fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was, a, it was a real pleasure. And I I know this is a, it's a Canadian show, that's and right. one of the things that I was really, that one of the memories of being in Harvey Danger that has been especially durable is that we spent a lot of time touring in Canada. Um, yeah. Coast and to coast. 
Coast to Coast, I mean, we, I don't know if we, we never made it to Winnipeg, I think, but we played, we did a lot of touring across Ontario, certainly. We played in Montreal a bunch. We did, and, you know, Vancouver was just uh, up the road. And so True. we did a lot and we played with a lot of cool Canadian bands that I really loved. And also, you know, the song Flagpole City was massively, massively uh, inspired by Eric's trip. And so there's a certain, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to nominate myself for honorary uh, citizenship, but um, <laughs> it, it was something that it was, you know, it was one of the kind of cool, weird things about being as visible as we were at that time is that we got to, you know, Canadian touring less exotic, certainly than, I don't know, touring in Asia or something, but mm -hmm. it was really fun and cool and something that has stayed close to my heart. So um, I was, wow. uh, that was one of the big, that was, I was excited that, um, that this, uh, I, I, that this opportunity arose because I, I recently saw some of the footage from when we did in studio stuff at much music uh, and, uh, and it was cool. It was really, uh, those were good memories. I'm so glad that you felt that way about your Canadian experiences. Um, I'm out West too. Like I'm in Edmonton. So oh, okay. it's 15 hour drive from Seattle. That's yeah. pretty much it. But um, that it takes a very strong person or group of people to tour across this country in, in a van or a bus because of yeah. the sheer size of it. But when yeah. you get to your destinations, it's totally worth it. Yeah. I mean, I, some of the most enjoyable evenings of my life were spent in Hamilton. Yeah. The hammer. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't actually, we weren't especially in charge of the decision making about our touring, but I think it was just, they were following the, uh, they were following the interest and I don't know, playing for uh, Canadian audiences was a joy and playing with the bands was a joy. It was just really, those, those were good times. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Have I, to maybe... I, I wanted I wanted to make sure to get that out because it really it was really meaningful. That's I'm definitely including that. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Sean. Thank you for spending the time with me for Dope Nostalgia Podcast. And Sean has some awesome solo work out there that I'd love for you guys to hear. I'll drop some links in the social media. Two albums available on Spotify, Nelson Sings Nielsen from 2019 and Make Good Choices from 2013. Check them out, stream them on all your streaming services. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.